As I've been getting the opportunity to preach, I have been working my way through Psalm 119. Tonight I am going to just take a quick break through or for that, uh, and we're going to be looking at a chapter from the book of 2 Kings. So if you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2, that is going to be our chapter, that's going to be our passage that we're going to work through this evening. So 2 Kings chapter 2, and I would invite you to have uh, your Bible open, don't have a handout or a PowerPoint this evening, so it'd be very helpful for you to see the text in front of you. But tonight we're looking at the life of the prophet Elijah, and actually we're looking at the very end of the life of Elijah on earth. Though it's the end of his life, we actually don't find Elijah dying in this story. So we're going to look at that in a few moments, but just to kind of introduce the passage, I just want to make two comments as we start this study, as we approach 2 Kings chapter 2, just since we haven't been working through the book of 2 Kings or 1 Kings um, recently. So two comments. The first is that this is a chapter that is to be kept together. All right, so the first comment I want to make is that this is a chapter that is to be kept together. We're taking the whole of chapter 2 of the book of 2 Kings, and as you just, just scan over this chapter, if you have your Bibles open, scan over this chapter, and it may have been expected that we would end at verse 14, or maybe we'd go as far as verse 18, but what I'd like to show tonight, and just by working our way through these verses, is I want to show that this is a chapter that belongs together. That certainly it could be preached in smaller sections and no harm would be done just so the unity of, of this passage is kept. When one comes to this chapter, again, if you just scan through it, and I mentioned it, it has something to do with the life of Elijah. I think usually we focus on this, this passage, focus on Elijah, one of two men in the Bible not to die. I know that's what I expected when I came to this passage to study it. But we find other stories in chapter 2 as well. Stories of crossing the Jordan River, which should sound familiar to us. Stories of bad water being turned into good water. Stories of even bears killing young men, men at the command of a prophet. So at first glance, we might think, how in the world is this a, a chapter that should be kept together? Aren't these all separate stories? But we're going to see this evening that this is a chapter that is connected, and these different sections are Related. So my first comment is that this is a chapter to be kept together. But the second comment to introduce chapter 2 to us is that this is a chapter of change. So we have a chapter to be kept together, and we also have a chapter of change. The statement at the beginning of the chapter, if you look at verse 1, it introduces to us and it hints to us this change and this transition in the nation of Israel. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. So we see Elijah is about to go up to heaven. We see Elijah is about to be replaced by Elisha. Certainly a ministry like Elijah's. If you know the story of Elijah, you know he was a great prophet. He did amazing things. Certainly a ministry like his when it's done, when it's finished, that's going to be felt, okay? The nation of Israel is going to feel that change. God had done a lot through Elijah, as I said. He provided for widows. He displayed the power and the uniqueness of God. He confronted wicked kings. So certainly a great loss will be felt at the completion of his ministry. So this is a chapter that should be kept together. 
And this is a chapter of change. And that's all introduction for 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, which, as I said, is helpful just since we haven't been working through the life of Elijah recently, or even Elisha's story. But we see this as a chapter that is a confirmation or even evidence that Elisha is Elijah's true replacement. The temptation when we come to this chapter is to focus on Elijah. This is the end of his life. He goes up to heaven in a whirlwind. He doesn't die. But we're going to see tonight that this chapter's focus is on Elisha and his transition into Elijah's role. So I'll try not to get those two names mixed up. I'll try and stress them. But we're going to see that the focus is on Elisha rather than Elijah and specifically as he transitions into Elijah's role. So the theme of this passage is this, and I'll read it, repeat it twice just so you get it all. The theme is, as Elijah's prophetic ministry ends, Elisha is shown to be his replacement, but even more so, God is shown to be still working despite Elijah's departure. Again, our theme is, as Elijah's prophetic ministry ends, Elijah is shown to be his replacement, but even more so, God is shown to be still working despite Elijah's departure. So we see first that Elisha is shown to be Elijah's replacement first through his commitment. So we're going to work our way through verses 2 through 8 to start. And we find in this first display of Elisha replacing Elijah that Elijah is actually testing Elisha three times. So let's look at Elisha, Elijah's first test of Elisha. Look with me at verses 2 through 3, and I'll read them. They say, And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So as you read through or as we read through this at first, it almost seems like Elijah just wants to be alone. That he doesn't want Elisha to follow him. We're going to see in a moment that this isn't the case. And we find in verse 3 then that a group of prophets comes alongside Elisha to tell him that Elijah is going to be taken away. We're not told, but they along with Elijah and Elisha seem to be aware of all or be aware of Elijah's coming departure. Elisha's response is to acknowledge it, but he tells him, stop mentioning it. Next, we see Elijah's second test of Elisha. Look with me at verses 4 through 5. We get a second test. Verse 4, Elijah, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So we see the very same interaction takes place between Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha and a new group of prophets. But this time they're in Jericho. And as maybe as you read this story in your Bible reading, at this point maybe you weren't paying attention too carefully. You don't catch the repetition. But by the third time, you certainly see and you know something is up as we see the same thing is repeated a third time as we look at Elijah's third test of Elisha. Look with me at verse, we'll read just verse 6, but this section is, or we see this test is from verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 says, 
Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to, to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. So we'll pause here for a moment at verse 6 as we see this third time that Elijah tries to get Elisha to stay behind. And as I've suggested with my points for each section, Elijah is testing Elisha. Elijah doesn't, it's not that Elijah wants to be alone in his last hours. It's not that he's getting annoyed with Elisha, but he's concerned about the spiritual well-being of Elisha. He's concerned about Elisha's commitment to the Lord and his work when Elijah's eventually off the scene. So we get a point of application here. We're challenged from the example of Elijah to be concerned about those who will take our place. Specifically, that God will continue to be honored and that he will be served faithfully. This should be a challenge to us to maybe find our replacement by considering how we serve, how we serve in the church, maybe who has similar gifts to us and abilities that one day they could do what we do. This should be something we are always looking out for and even praying to God that God would replace, would replace us or bring our replacement to be trained up. This isn't only something we do to fulfill a position or a place to serve in the church, but there is something we, this is something we need to be doing as Christians, training up other Christians so that when we die or even get older or we step down from maybe a responsibility in the church, they are there to lead and set the example for the church. So parents, you can do this with your children by teaching them about God and the scriptures, by setting an example of what it looks like to trust God so that your kids can follow you. We can do this in the church with younger Christians by taking them under our wing, getting to know them, having coffee with them, studying the Bible together with them. Senior high teens can do this with junior high teens by befriending them, seeking to provide a godly example for them in youth group. Maybe it's a deacon taking someone along with him to visit a widow in her home, training them what it looks like to visit. Maybe you set aside an hour each week to meet up with and pray with someone who you are trying to help them grow in their faith. So we see this from Elijah's concern for Elisha as he takes his place. But there's another application that, that I want to point out here, bring from this text, and that's from the example of Elisha, and it's specifically in his commitment. If you think about the three times Elijah tells him just to stay behind, Elisha's response in all three times is to continue with him, to say, no, I'm continuing with you. So he shows his commitment. He shows his faithfulness, his endurance before he's ever in a position to lead or what he's ultimately being trained for. And this should challenge those who are younger in our congregation. Or maybe those who aren't in the responsibility that they eventually would like to be in. To be faithful in the ways you're serving right now. Elisha could have stopped following Elijah, viewing it as pointless, as he knew he'd be leaving soon. Or he could have given up due to the time that this transition would, be ta would take, or ultimately the humbling tasks that he would have to do. But we see he stays committed. So the challenge to us is to remain faithful as we train. Moving on to verses 7 through 8, if you look with me there, we see the second part of this test or what happens around it. Verse 7 says, 50 men of the sons of the prophet also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other. 
till the two of them could go over on dry ground. So in the last two sections, we saw the repetition of the prophets coming. They question Elisha concerning Elijah's departure. Here we see another set of the prophets, but this time we see they're just onlookers to this miracle. A miracle that should be familiar to you. If you think about other stories in the Bible that happened before this, this should be a familiar miracle. Okay, It's a miracle that traces both stories of Moses leading the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea as God divided the Red Sea. And then even Joshua, as he led the people into the Promised Land, God divided the Jordan River. So we have a very similar thing going on here, and we're going to look at this a little bit more um, later on in this message. But for this first point, as we consider Elisha being shown to be Elijah's replacement, we emphasize both Elijah's training up and Elisha's commitment, his faithfulness, his devotedness to both Elijah and even more so to God and the work that he's going to be doing. Okay, so this is the first piece of evidence that we find in this text that Elisha is Elijah's true replacement. Elisha's shown, as we move on in this story, Elisha's shown to be Elijah's replacement, secondly, through his request. Okay, so we find an offer and a request in verse 9, if you look with me there. 2 Kings 2, verse 9 says, When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. So Elisha, Elijah offers to give Elisha something before he leaves this earth. And Elisha's request is for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. You read that phrase, and this is maybe something that you usually come along in your Bible reading. You're not quite sure what it means. A double portion of your spirit. I know when I came to this text, I wasn't quite sure what it meant, but I assumed that it was pretty self-centered. He doesn't just want a portion. He wants a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So I personally viewed this request uh, that Elisha gave as, as something that he wanted selfishly, he wanted to, be, wanted to be even more successful than Elijah. But when we look again at what Elisha asks for and take it in the context of the story, I'd say rather than finding a self-centered request, we actually find a God-glorifying request. What Elisha is asking for when he speaks of a double portion of the spirit of Elijah is related to the double portion that sons would get from their fathers back in that time. We see this in passages such as Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17. The double portion would specifically be given to the oldest son of a man, and he would carry on the father's name. He would um, carry on the possessions of the father after his death. So certainly we know that Elijah and Elisha, they weren't biologically related. They weren't father, son. But we're going to actually see in a little bit that this relationship, though they weren't biologically related, you could call and say that they had a father-son relationship as later in the story, Elisha actually calls Elijah my father. But we also have seen that this concept of a double portion and carrying on the father's name and possessions has actually already been given to Elisha, as Elisha is to replace. He's to take over for Elijah's position as the prophet of Israel. So we might ask, is, it, it, is that it then? Is that all that Elisha is asking for when he says, I want a double portion of your spirit, that he's simply to replace Elijah? 
I don't think so, as Elisha already knew he was going to get that. So I think there's more to it. When Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, he's asking for the strength. He's asking for the ability to fulfill such a responsibility. So he's not just asking, I want to replace you, or can I replace you? But he's asking for the strength, for the ability to actually be able to do what Elijah did. Listen as I read how Richard Patterson in the Expositor's Commentary describes what Elisha is asking for. He says this, Rather, the enormity of the loss of Elisha, of Elijah, must have so gripped the humble Elisha that claiming his position as heir, he asked for the firstborn's double portion, that is, for specially granted spiritual power, far beyond his own capabilities, to meet the responsibilities of the awesome task that lay before him. He wished, virtually, that Elijah's mighty prowess might continue to live through him. So Elisha's response could be likened to Solomon's. When God offers Solomon anything he wants, and Solomon replies in 1 Kings 3, verse 9, Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? So what I'm saying in explaining this double portion is that this is not a self-centered request, but instead it shows a humble and it shows a serious response to be being granted Elijah's replacement. We see Elisha's humility in that he realizes that this task is way too large for him. By his own power, he cannot fulfill what has been put before him. Many would run into a position like this excited, thinking that they can take it on, relying on their own abilities, proclaiming their many talents and accomplishments. Yet here Elisha, as he goes into this position, we see he um, humbly asks for help. Elisha, I called his request a serious or realizing the seriousness of it in that he doesn't make light of it. He doesn't just stroll in thinking it's going to be a relaxing or, or a piece of cake type of position, but he prepares. He gets ready for the tough things he may face. So the application for us is Elisha is an example for us. When it comes to serving the Lord, he realized his limitations, he realized his weaknesses, he knew he needed help. We should be challenged to ask the Lord for help and strength to fulfill what he's called us to do. We shouldn't think that we are somehow more gifted than others or beyond anyone else's help in a certain position. Also a point of application is that Elisha is also an example in how he seriously dealt with the Lord's work. Elisha could have walked into this position with ease, he could have been relaxed, but he shows that he takes the Lord's work seriously when he asks for this double portion. He realizes that his work will have an impact. It will be meaningful for God's plans and purposes. We should do the same when it comes to the work we are doing for the Lord, both in church but also out of church as well. When it comes to church, no matter how small you think your role it is important, and the Lord is using you. But even when it comes to our interactions, maybe outside of the church, in our, in our jobs, in our schools, in our families, we should realize the seriousness of living a life that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Our work for the Lord should not be something that we take lightly, and we see Elisha certainly did not. So Elisha requests this, and then we get Elijah's response. If you look with me at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. 
Verse 10 says, And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. So notice two things from Elijah's response. First, he calls Elisha's request a hard thing, because it's something that Elijah couldn't give him, but only God could. And then second, notice the sign Elijah gives that will show that Elisha, show Elisha he will have what he has requested. It's only if Elisha stays committed. As we have seen in the first half of our chapter, that's been stressed as Elijah's tests the committedness, the faithfulness of his replacement. As we move on in the story, we see that Elisha is shown to be Elijah's replacement thirdly by his response after Elijah's departure. And this section comes from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So we see first Elijah's departure. We keep using the word departure, as I said in the beginning. This is the end of Elijah's life, but we see he doesn't die. He departs. He goes up to heaven. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. It says, And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So we see Elisha's response is telling about the relationship that these two had. If you look with me at verse 12, it says, And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them, into pieces. So, as I said, the focus isn't necessarily on Elijah in this story. We've seen that already, and even his departure, maybe what we usually come to this chapter for, is just given one verse. It's given just one line. So the focus is on Elisha, and we see his response here, and I think we can pull a point of application from his response in that he says, my father, my father. Certainly not, or we know it's not a biological relationship but I think it's a spiritual one. He looks up to him as his father. So a point of application, consider your relationships, and specifically the relationships you have with those who are younger, that you're training up to replace you one day. Do you have these relationships? Can people look up to you as their spiritual father or mother, just someone they look up to as a leader, as an example? And we see Elijah and Elisha certainly have this relationship, and we're going to actually look at it in a moment, we see there's other people in the Bible, Moses and Joshua, that have these types of relationships as well. So here we come to the part of the story that I want to focus on for a few moments in this section, and that's that Elisha's, or we see Elisha's next steps after his master is off the scene. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. So these next steps of, Eli of Elisha that he takes are to be seen as a visible symbol that Elisha has truly replaced Elijah. Elisha starts to retrace the steps that he and Elijah took, but of course this time he actually does it alone. He begins with the action Elijah took to cross the Jordan, and that is to strike it with a cloak. Elisha takes Elijah's cloak that had fallen off him, and he struck the water. Unlike Elijah, he yells a question. If you look back, we see that he says in verse 14, the question is asked, 
Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Just like that phrase, the double portion of, of Elijah's spirit, I think this is one of the more difficult parts of this story. Why does Eli Elisha ask this question? What does he mean by saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? We see that these words are not somehow questioning if God is really there in unbelief, nor is Elisha saying he does not believe in God as it was only Elijah's God. But Elisha's question here is to ask if God will work through him as he had done Elijah. That is what is being asked when he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Will God work through him just as he did with Elijah? And surely we see he is. Just as God had promised back in 1 Kings 19 that Elisha would replace Elijah, this event surely makes it clear that Elisha is the next Elijah as the Jordan River divides in two and he crosses over. This event, as I said back when Elijah did it, has traces of other stories, the crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan River, and I don't think that's by accident. I don't think it's just randomly this event's happening especially at the Jordan River. But I believe we are to see a connection here in how God divided the Red Sea as Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and then God divided the Jordan River as Joshua led the people into the Promised Land. We see a dynamic here of two sets of leaders, Moses and Joshua, and then Elijah and Elisha. And in both sets, we see a transition as Joshua took over from Moses. And now we see Elisha takes over for Elijah. This event of Elisha crossing the Jordan is to cause us to remember the Moses and the Joshua relationship to make it clear that Elisha is Elijah's replacement. And I believe there's a greater point to be made here beyond just seeing a transition in leadership, and that's to consider God's part in this. Elisha's question is, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? It signals us to pay attention to God's part in this story. So not just Elisha, not just Elijah, but to pay attention to God's part in this story as it can be easily forgotten, easily missed. We see that God remains the same. He continues to work through Elisha just as he had with Elijah. And even further, we could say that God, who worked hundreds of years before with Moses and Joshua, continues to work in Elijah and Elisha. His plans, his purposes are continuing to be fulfilled just through different human agents. So a point of application or several points of application we see from this is that is first, this should be comforting and an exciting point for us as we learn that God continues to work even when good, godly, highly looked up to leaders retire or they die or they step out of a position. We see that God still works. He will still continue to work through other faithful men and women. God's work does not stop when someone is off the scene. Another point of application, as I said, we see that God, God's plans continue even after hundreds of years. After Moses and Joshua, we see he continues to work through an Elijah and Elisha. That's a great reminder that God is continuing to work in our day and age. He worked through the apostles. Think about maybe the Reformation with John Calvin and Martin Luther, and we see that God is certainly at work in our world today. He continues. He is with every generation and in every age carrying out his will. 
Then a last point of application from this section is that we are to see from this passage, possibly first and foremost, that it is God who is over all things and remains constant and faithful despite the fall and the rise of human leaders. This should cause us to evaluate maybe how we view different leaders in our lives. Have we put them on a pedestal thinking they cannot be replaced? Because God shows here that leaders like Moses and Elijah can be replaced, and God's plans will continue. We may look up to godly leaders. We should look up to godly leaders and seek to follow their lives, but we should look far more up to our great God. We move on to verses 15 through 18, and we find that Elisha is shown to be Elijah's replacement fourth through Elijah's disappearance. So we first see in this section that it seems like Elisha, he's accepted as Elijah's replacement. Look with me at verse 15. 2 Kings 2 verse 15 says, Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. So remember when we were in verse 14, Elisha had just walked through the Jordan River. Also remember back in verses 7 through 8, we're told that 50 men of the sons of the prophets were there. These 50 men of the sons of the prophets seem to be the same men that are here in verse 15. They experienced Elijah and Elisha going through the Jordan River. They seem, and now they see, just Elisha going through the Jordan River. They experienced the same thing, but now it's just Elisha. Further, they declare that the spirit of Elijah was on Elisha. They saw Elijah part the Jordan River. Now they see Elisha do the same exact miracle. They seem to believe that at the very least, Elisha has the same power as Elijah. And then at the end of verse 15, they bow in respect to Elisha. All of this seems like Elisha is accepted as the prophet in place of Elijah. But as we move on in the text, we see this isn't the case. We see that the prophets believe Elijah is actually still on earth. If you look with me at verse 16, 2 Kings 2 verse 16 says, And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. So they believe Elijah has just simply disappeared, okay? That Elisha hasn't replaced him in his ministry, but Elijah has just disappeared. He can't be found. And if we look back at 1 Kings chapter 18, we see this was actually a common thing that either Elijah did or just a belief about Elijah. A man named Obadiah says this in 1 Kings chapter 18 about or to Elijah. He says, And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And then in verse 12 of chapter 18, he says, and as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. So these prophets seem to think that Elijah was just carried off by the Lord somewhere else, but he's on the earth. He's still serving. His ministry hasn't end, ended. So now the prophets think that this is exactly what has happened to Elijah. And we see that Elisha, he tells them not to do this. We see the prophets win out in search but they don't find Elijah. If you look with me at verses 17 through 18, they say, but when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. And they sent therefore 50 men 
And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And then verse 18 says, And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? So they search, but they don't find Elijah, realizing Elisha has replaced him. So a point of application. What can we learn from this fourth section showing Elisha replacing Elijah? And we see that we find that sometimes it's hard to accept a replacement. We may still be attached to the one who led for years, the one who had become accustomed, or we had become accustomed to following, the one who was looked up to. And though we may respect and even in some ways acknowledge their successor, it's hard to let them let go of them. We see this here in verses 15 through 18 as we consider Elijah's replacement and his acceptance. But we see next that Elisha certainly is accepted. And we see that these, new te- these next two sections, if you just glance at them in your Bibles, we find two stories, and we find that these are further evidence of Elisha's succession after Elijah. And more specifically, we see Elisha proclaiming God's blessing and God's curse. We see him serving. We see him in this, this uh, role that Elijah had had doing miracles. And as I had said in the beginning of this message, both of these passages we could take separately. They could be preached on their own, but I think they belong to this passage. And as I said, I think they're further evidence that Elisha has replaced Elijah. So we see Elisha is shown to be Elijah's replacement fifth through his blessing of grace on the city of Jericho. This comes from verses 19 through 22. So we see Elisha is made aware of Jericho's problem. Look with me at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. So the first thing I want us to notice here in the beginning of this fifth, fifth section of chapter 2 is that Elisha is actually brought this situation. The people of Jericho seem to acknowledge his position as Elijah's replacement as they bring him this situation and not to someone else. The second thing I want us to notice is where this problem is. Verse 18 shows us it's in the city of Jericho. Jericho is a city with quite the history in the Bible. This is a city that Joshua and the Israelites, they marched around and God made the walls fall down so that they defeated the city of Jericho. Very common Sunday school story. We see further in that story in the book of Joshua that Joshua gives this a curse after it was destroyed. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So this was a city, the city of Jericho. It shouldn't have been rebuilt. But yet in our passage, a couple hundred years later, after Joshua pronounced this curse, we see Jericho is standing. It is a city. Well, we find this city was rebuilt under the reign of King Ahab. And I'll read this passage. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34 says, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So we see that this is a city that was destroyed, a wicked city, 
A curse is put on it, and we see that it's ultimately rebuilt. So we're not told directly that this city has this water problem due to the curse, but it certainly seems like they're connected. And with all this in mind, notice what Elisha does. We see Elisha restores the water. Look with me at verses 20 through 22. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went up to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I've healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the people, so the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. So this cursed city, this bad water is restored. It's healed. This might be a little surprising when we take into that prior context that I mentioned, that this was a city that was to never be rebuilt, and yet here we find Elisha helping and actually supporting this city's growth. The key to understanding this, or the key to maybe solving this problem with this text, is seeing Elisha's intentions that are found in verse 21. And we see that this was not by Elisha's own doing. If you look again at verse 21 of 2 Kings chapter 2, it says, Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither dew nor miscarriage shall come from it. So this city was not healed by Elisha. It wasn't by his power or necessarily his own agenda, but it was done by God. God brought this healing. God restored this story or this city. So an application from this section is that it's important to recognize that this healing, this miracle, is not by Elisha's own doing, but God's. This might seem a bit obvious, but without Elisha mentioning that God said this, the outward miracle and what Elisha did seemed like it was by his own power, his own doing, his own agenda. Can't we fall temptation into temptation to do the same exact thing, viewing our service as something that we do, our gifts, our abilities, ultimately it's something that God is doing through us. So God had originally had the Israelites destroy this city and brought about the deaths of the man's sons who rebuilt the city of Jericho. So the only answer to what is going on with the city of Jericho now with Elisha is that God shows his grace to this city of Jericho. And even further, for our theme and focus of this chapter, we see Elisha is chosen as a minister of God's grace to a city that didn't deserve it. So we see yet another piece of evidence that Elisha is Elijah's replacement through this miracle, specifically a miracle of God's blessing of grace being given to the people of Jericho. And now we come to the sixth and the final piece of evidence Elisha administering something for God, but something quite different, a curse. Elisha is shown to be Elijah's replacement sixth through his curse in Bethel. Read this section all at once. If you look with me at verse 23, as we close out chapter 2, it says, He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him and saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So this is a tricky text. Questions may abound. 
In one sense, we might laugh at it. Elisha's being called a bald guy. Um, but also we see there's a kind of a problem there that he's calling out two she-bears to destroy what are called boys. But we see that this section certainly belongs in chapter 2 or with the rest of these stories. As I said, this is a chapter of unity. It should be seen together. Um, and ultimately, we say, or we might even ask, how does this show that Elisha is Elijah's replacement? Give us three things to consider. First, notice where this takes place. The city is Bethel. This is the center of false worship in Israel, that the first king of the divided kingdom of Israel set up to worship golden calves. So this would not be a place where Elisha and where his God would be welcomed. All right, so it's the first thing to consider, and it's important. Second, notice the insult. The small boys, or these small boys can actually be, um, or this, this phrase or word can be translated as young men. So these are most likely more so young men. Um, they insult Elisha, but in so doing, they're insulting his God as well. Elisha's ministry is in jeopardy, and God is being dishonored. And then thirdly, consider who sent the bears. Elisha couldn't do this on his own, or by his own doing, it was God. If we look just at chapter before, just like in chapter 1 of 2 Kings, God sends fire down on the captain and his 50 when they come to Elijah. This act of sending she-bears may have been to punish these, these young men, for insulting Elisha and God, but it also could have been used to protect Elisha. Forty-two or more men coming out and insulting him, they may have wanted to do a lot more to him than just insult him, and we see God sends these she-bears. So really we see some of the same dynamics as we saw with Jericho in the cursed water, but here we see it's Elisha cursing these false worshipers. We see Elisha administering God's punishment to those who do not follow or honor him. So we've seen six instances in which Elisha is shown to be Elijah's replacement. Six instances in which we see God is continuing his work through Elisha as he did through Elijah. And ultimately as Elijah is off the scene for most of this story. What do we conclude with? Repeat the theme we said in the beginning, that the theme of this passage, or what this passage boils down to, is as Elijah's prophetic ministry ends, Elisha is shown to be his replacement. But even more so that God is shown to still be working despite Elijah's departure. So we learn important lessons concerning training up the next generation as Elijah passes on what he has to Elisha. We see important lessons about these spiritual relationships. Elijah and Elisha, Moses and Joshua type of relationships. We see how we who are younger should serve faithfully, even when we may not be serving in the role that we're ultimately looking to have, like Elisha did. We learn lessons of showing grace and of standing up for God's honor. But the point I want to stress from this passage, and I think the point that this uh, or the main point or the author's intent of this passage is that God is shown to still be working despite Elijah's departure. That God is far above his servant Elijah. That God's plans, his purposes are greater than Elijah. 
that Elijah is really just one small part of God's grand, God's grand scheme or God's purposes. Elijah may be off the scene, and yet God continues to work. Elijah may have accomplished lots in his ministry, yet it was only through God that he could do so. We're to remember Elijah's God, who is ultimately to credit for his victories and accomplishments. And isn't this what Elisha was saying in the middle of our story when he says, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? So how does this passage apply to us? First, may we be looking to God as the one who is continually working in every generation. For those of us who are older and have accomplished much for God's sake, may we credit it to God and give him the praise and the glory. May you realize that ministry, the church, and all the ways you serve do not end if you're finished or you pass away. That God will raise up a replacement to continue to accomplish his will. For those who are younger, may we not rest upon those who are older or have, who have been our leaders too much that they outweigh God in our minds. So as I said, we by all means should be looking up to godly examples, to leaders in our lives, the older generation. But they shouldn't outweigh, outweigh God in our minds. They shouldn't take the place of God in our lives. May they be an example, but may they not take the place of God. May it be God that we ultimately look to to continue to work and bring about his plans and purposes through this church in the world. So from 2 Kings 2, all throughout the chapter, we find a God who is everlasting to everlasting, who is unchanging and continues to work from one generation to the next to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And we have that same God working among us in this church and in the world today. Let us close with a word of prayer. God, I just thank you for this text of 2 Kings chapter 2 and Lord, I just pray that we would really be challenged to certainly look up to godly leaders in our lives, maybe spiritual fathers or mothers, people who have invested in our lives, people who we ultimately will take their place one day. I pray, Lord, that you would just bless our church with many people like this. But at the same time, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of the fact that it's ultimately you who is over this church, is over this world, ultimately the one that is accomplishing your plans and purposes through all that we do, even as we learn this morning of your big picture, of everything that's going on in our lives. You are over it all. And God, I just pray that that would be our focus, that we would be thinking about how we are serving you with what we're doing. Lord, I just thank you for this text. Thank you for the example of Elijah and Elisha. And I pray that you would just help us to uh, really apply this chapter to our lives. And in your name I pray, amen.